bone of contention has no place in the body of Christ. I guess you could categorize that statement as a pithy statement. It has substance, it has point. A bone of contention has no place in the body of Christ. When will today's church learn this important truth? In the world in which we live and work, there's plenty of contention, wouldn't you say? And it's a place where your opinion is attacked by everyone, where your questions are mocked by those who have so-called arrived, where competition among peers is so intense that if you stop to breathe, you're steamrolled out of existence. It's a place where you always have to prove yourself to others, where acceptance must be earned, and the atmosphere is stressful and demanding. It is a storm with no shelter. Just try to maintain a presence on Facebook for any length of time and all of those things you will experience. Shouldn't the church be of a different character? Listen to how one man has written about the church of the first century. Quote, somehow the early saints maintained a loving atmosphere, an authentic appeal of positive acceptance. No amount of pressure from without disturbed the peace within. Think about that statement. The result was predictable. People could not stay away from their meeting places. The assembly of believers was the place to be. To be yourself. To share your grief to ask your questions, to admit your needs, to shed your tears, to speak your mind, to dream your dreams. Why, of course, is there any place on earth more suitable, more perfectly designed for that kind of openness? No, I would say not. A blind songwriter of many years ago has aptly painted the image of what our assembly together should be. Listen to some of the lyrics. If this is not a place where tears are understood, then where shall I go to cry? And if this is not a place where my spirit can take wings, then where shall I go to fly? I don't need another place for trying to impress you with just how good and virtuous I am. No, no, no. I don't need another place for always being on top of things. Everybody knows that it's a sham. It's a sham. I don't need another place for always wearing smiles. Even when it's not the way I feel. I don't need another place to mouth the same old platitudes. Everybody knows that it's not real. So if this is not a place where my questions can be asked then where shall I go to seek? And if this is not a place where my heart, can, my heart cry can be heard, where, tell me where, shall I go to speak? One well-known pastor has written that when the early church met, magnetic charm brought joy. When they prayed, there was power. When they gave, there was generosity. When they embraced, there was love. When they spoke, there was authenticity. When they left, there were tears. Centuries later, the church continues. Our family is much bigger and more influential, but the pastor asked this question, but is it better? 
We're not always as unified and as loving as we should be, are we? As we think about that, we need to realize that it wasn't always smooth sailing for the early church either. But when things started going off course, the Holy Spirit usually moved men to either speak or write and got it corrected. We in this century have the benefit of those writings, don't we? I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Every church experiences its times of storms. When contention reigns, but we always have the answer, don't we? We have the answer. The answer is found in the stabilizing peace of Jesus Christ. As we begin to close out this letter to the Philippians, hey, we've made it to chapter 4. Every verse. We find here that the Holy Spirit is moving Paul to exhort the church to maintain this semblance of peace. Not semblance of it, the real thing. Throughout this book, Paul has presented to us the joy that we experience in the gospel of Christ. Chapter 1, let's go back and kind of refresh your memories. Chapter 1 outlined the joy that's involved in the promotion of the gospel. Chapter 2 showed us that the joyful product of the gospel was a Christ-like pattern of life. In chapter 3, we just recently saw that the joyful promise of the gospel was our progress toward maturity in Christ. And here in chapter 4, Paul tops off the letter with the joyful power of the gospel being worked out in our lives to maintain peace. More specifically, he's going to show us today that the joyful power of the gospel is the stabilizing peace of Christ. That stability enables us to experience peace in the midst of storms of life. More specifically, three major storms in this chapter. First, because of our stability in Christ, we can experience peace with other people when relationships get tense. That's what we're going to look at today in the first three verses. We can also experience peace of mind when worry stresses us out. We're going to look at that next time, verses 4 to 9. And then finally, we can experience peace in our circumstances when things get really tight. We're going to see that in verses 10 to 19. But it seems appropriate today as we gather around the Lord's table in a few moments to focus on maintaining peace with each other. Now, I don't have any particular relationships in mind that are under some sort of strain or tension right now. I'm not thinking of any specific rifts in our con congregation, but it's highly probable that in a church of 300, 350 people, odds are that there are some tense relations, wouldn't you say? God knows I don't need to. Yet even if there were none, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Amen? So Paul does this great job of making a transition from his intensely passionate and theological focus in chapter 3 to this personal and very practical issue that it's hard to tell where the last section ends and the next session, section, this section, begins. Follow along with me as I read the context again. We're going to begin in chapter 3 and verse 15 and go right down to chapter 4, verse 3. 
Paul says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Let's just end right there. Now because we who believe in and follow Christ are citizens of heaven, and we eagerly wait for Christ to return, when we will be transformed into his very likeness, then we should stand firm in Christ, Paul says. No matter what unrest rages around us, we have stability in Christ. Is that right? It's the main command in this section of Scripture that we're looking at today. In short, Paul is exhorting us to realize that our stability in Christ enables us to maintain peace with each other, and specifically in this section, peace with others in the body of Christ. Our practice of establishing a firm footing on the rock of Christ will enable us to maintain peaceful relationships with each other. That is precisely what living out the gospel is all about. It's it's having spiritual intimacy with each other because we share the same salvation, the same focus, the same purpose, the same struggles as we live in this world. And this world's really not our true home, is it? So we share the same destination. That shared experience, Paul says, should bind us together, not tear us apart. So the first practical truth Paul is getting at here, getting us to realize, is that when our stability is in Christ, we are surrounded by relational and spiritual intimacy. Verse 1, chapter 4, therefore, my beloved, look at the words here. I don't know what translations you're using. I'm using the New American Standard here. But therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, My beloved, we should maintain spiritual intimacy with others in the body of Christ. This verse drips with relational warmth. Look at the words that Paul is using here. Literally what he's saying in this verse, he uses these phrases. The beloved of me, he addresses these people as. The beloved of me. Brothers 
and sisters of me. You who are longed for by me, the joy of me, the crown of me. And then he taps it off again by saying, the beloved of me. Bookends. The ones whom he loves. Again, just as I indicated in one of the first messages in this series that I preached, Paul had a very strong affection for these people. He longed for them. You can check it out in chapter 1, verse 8. He was spiritually tied to them as their pastor, and they were his joy and his crown. Paul enjoyed an intimate relationship with many of the churches to which he wrote. As a matter of fact, just look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. We read some uh, very similar sentiments here in these verses. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Our glory and joy. See, these people brought him extreme joy. And it brought Paul joy to see his converts growing and maturing in the Lord. And he wanted it to continue. So right in the middle of all these intimate words, he slips in this command. Look at it in verse 1. Stand firm. My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. In fact, I think it's one of his favorite pieces of spiritual counsel. Finding it in a number of his letters. One of Paul's chief, chief joys as a pastor was to see the church standing firmly and solidly in Christ Jesus. I can relate to that. I can understand what the Apostle John was feeling when he wrote in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. That's a pastoral sentiment. When I look out at your faces, my greatest joy is to see you walking in Christ. On your own, healthy, vibrant, striving, longing to be like him without any one of the pastoral staff or the small group leaders holding your hand. That is our chief joy. Some of you in this congregation have introduced others in this church to Christ. You can relate exactly to what Paul is saying here. Your greatest joy for those whom you disciple is to see them walking in the truth, isn't it? Stability in Christ is surrounded by spiritual intimacy with others. That kind of intimacy pulls churches together. But the spiritual intimacy that provides the foundation of the church is an intimacy that we maintain not necessarily with each other first and foremost, but in Christ. We need to maintain the spiritual intimacy with the Lord first because that's the foundation 
That's also in chapter in the first verse here of chapter four. He says, "Stand firm." How? What's it say? In the Lord. In the Lord. Everything that we strive for in the church, everything that we aim at in the church, every objective we set out to accomplish together must be rooted in the same Lord or it will waver and it will fall. Philippians chapter 1. Just turn back a moment to Philippians chapter 1 and look at verse 27. Paul is reiterating a truth that he unveiled early on in this letter. Chapter 1 verse 27 only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are, say it, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. How are we going to stand strong in the face of persecution? First of all, it's got to be rooted and grounded in the Lord. Second of all, it's with our brothers and sisters around us, binding us together for the faith. An old, old, old football coach, famous in Notre Dame football coach, had four simple rules for the selection of the guys on his renowned Notre Dame football teams, and this is what they were. First of all, he said, I will not have a guy with a swelled head for you cannot teach him anything. Imagine if pro football teams today had that as the first rule. Half their teams would be gone. Secondly, I will not have a griper, kicker, or complainer. Thirdly, I will allow no dissipation. There goes the other half of the teams. And I will not have a guy with an inferiority complex. He must believe that he can accomplish things. I think those all apply to people in the church. When we stand firm in the Lord, we can accomplish things as a team, can't we? Not as individuals striving for our own success and glory, but as a unit, a body, a church working in harmony with each other for the cause of Christ. Amen? Not only is our stability in Christ surrounded by spiritual and relational intimacy, but it goes further than that. Paul says our stability in Christ is also supported by mutual harmony. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Have you ever wondered what makes the difference, what the difference is between a spotlight and and a laser beam? How can a medium power laser burn through steel in a matter of seconds while the most powerful spotlight can only make it warm? Both may have the same electrical power requirements, but you know what the difference is? Unity. Concentrated unity. A laser can be simply described as a medium of excited molecules with mirrors at each end. And some of the excited molecules naturally decay into a less excited state. Think people now, right? In the decay process, they release a photon, a particle of light. 
It is here that the unique process of the laser begins. The photon moves along and tickles other molecules, inviting other photons to join him in the journey. These two photons tickle two more molecules and invite two more photons to join the parade. And soon, there is a huge army of photons marching in step with each other. It is this unity that gives the laser its intense power. A spotlight may have just as many photons present, but each is going in its own independent way, occasionally interfering with other photons, getting in their way. And as a result, much of its power is dissipated and wasted and cannot be focused to do any useful work. However, the laser, because of its intense, concentrated unity, is like an army marching in tight formation and is able to focus all of its power on one objective. You see the parallel? Jamie Buckingham wrote convincingly, quote, the strategy of the devil is to keep people from one another in a separated hell of isolation and independence relating their lives to each other only superficially. While we are called on by God to sharpen our individualism, that is never to be done independently from other members of the family of God, he says. Euodia and Syntyche lost sight of that in the Philippian church, and sometimes we do in ours, don't we? Interesting thing, Macedonian women, where Philippi was, enjoyed a prominent role in the leadership of the church. Paul refers to them here as fellow workers who shared his struggle in the gospel. These were two very, very significant and important women in the congregation of the church at Philippi. And whatever position they held... It doesn't say what it was, but they held one. It was significant to the ministry, and the fact that they were engaged in some kind of personal conflict was obviously having an effect on the rest of the church. Because of their divisiveness, the church was in danger of becoming splintered. And unfortunately, that's a scenario which has occurred over and over and over again in churches throughout history and has caused the other members of that same body to be totally devastated, some wrecked for life. One pastor has noted, unthinkable and unnatural though it may seem, the bride has been brawling for centuries. We get along for a little while, and then we're back at each other's throats. After a bit, we make up. We walk in wonderful harmony for a few days. Then we turn on one another. We can switch from friend to fiend in a matter of moments. He says, in a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy says to Snoopy, there are times when you really bug me. But I must admit, there are also times when I feel like giving you a big hug. Snoopy replies, that's the way I am, huggable and buggable. <laughs> and so it is with us in our relationships within the ranks of God's family, right? Now, I'm not referring to the variety of personalities that are involved in the church, the gifts, the tastes, the preferences, that's all healthy stuff. 
The master made us like that, didn't he? It's our mistreatment of each other. The infighting, the angry assaults, the verbal misrepresentations, the choosing of sides, the stubborn wills, the childish squabbles that many, many people in churches engage in. An objective onlooker who watches us from a distance could wonder how and why some of us call ourselves Christians, right? You've all seen that or have experienced it in some way or another. You may be asking, must we always agree? Well, absolutely not. But the greater point is, is that we can always be agreeable. Amen? We can fulfill the directive given to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, which says we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That can happen. It's the Holy Spirit that bonds us together, that binds us together. The question here in Philippians 4 is not which of these two women was in the wrong, nor is it to ask what the controversy was all about. The point that Paul knew he needed to address here was that both of their attitudes needed to be stabilized in one place, in the Lord, in the Lord. He knew that if the focus of each of them was riveted on Jesus Christ, that the disharmony would vanish. Notice that I didn't say the disagreement would vanish, but the disharmony. We as Christians can agree to disagree and still live in perfect harmony, can't we? A.W. Tozer used to say that a hundred pianos tuned to the same tuning fork would each be in tune with each other. If we're all in tune with Jesus Christ, we'll be in tune with each other. That doesn't mean we're always playing the same note. Paul uses a strong word in the Greek here when he, when he speaks to these two women who were at odds. He pleads with them and strongly admonishes them to be like minded, like-minded, to live in harmony, it says in the New American Standard. Literally, the word here means to have the same attitude or disposition, and he begs them to bring their attitudes into harmony with one another. It's interesting that Paul uses this word 11 times in this letter, while it's used only 17 times in the entire New Testament. 11 times in the letter to the Philippians, and that's a fairly short letter. Clearly, this was a very important issue to Paul. The church was in danger of division because of this particular personality clash that he's mentioning right here. And I believe it was a personality clash and not a doctrinal issue because Paul always addressed doctrinal issues and dealt with them specifically. But here, I'm convinced it was this clash, this personality clash that Paul alluded to earlier when he wrote in Philippians chapter 2 in the first four verses, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit and any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the, what? Same mind, maintaining the same love, 
united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. I think we all need to hear Paul's exhortation here. You know why? Because we live in a day when every relationship known to man has been riddled with strife. Am I not right? Whether it's a business relationship or a friendship or a church relationship or a marriage, personality clashes seem to be ripping Christians apart at an alarming rate. Churches that split over personality clashes rather than doctrinal issues are spiritually immature churches. I attend a a pastor's roundtable. I've told you this once a month with pastors from around the mid-coast, Portland area. Some of the stories that I hear of churches around that area would just blow your mind. The strife that's going on in churches. Churches right around this area that I've had contact with. Spiritually immature. Dividing over personality clashes rather than doctrinal issues. Let me say this. Disharmony in the church disintegrates the effect of the gospel in the world. It destroys our testimony. Jesus said with unobstructed clarity, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People won't know us as Christ followers by how much knowledge of Scripture that we have and we boast about, not by how many Christian books that we have read or by what celebrity preacher we may be following or even what church we attend. He said that the world would know that we are truly of Christ by the fact that we have love for one another. And it's clear from these couple of verses here in Philippians chapter 4 that there was at least one relationship in the Philippian congregation that wasn't operating that way. And you know what's interesting to me here? Paul actually names them. He names them. Forever in church history, their names, Euodia and Syntyche, will be known as the two women who couldn't seem to to make it work. Right? Paul refers specifically to each of them in a letter that was to be read before the entire congregation. That's the way these letters were passed around. And he names them. Can you imagine that happening here? Right now? How would it feel if you had a rift going on with somebody and I called you out on a Sunday morning service? This is the difference between the early church and the contemporary church. Paul cared enough about them to want to help them. His words are not harsh here. They're very, very gracious. Look at them. I urge or I plead. 
with Euodia. And then he repeats it again. I urge or I plead with Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And I think that he, he repeats that word, I urge, both with both of their names attached to it because he wasn't taking sides. He was equally exhorting both of them. His words are not harsh, they're not gracious, but they are serious. God speaks to us the same way about our relationships, specifically and individually. You and I could find our own names in the place of Euodia and Syntyche's. Are you having a conflict with anybody? Is there disharmony in your marriage or in your relationships to somebody in the church? Put your names in the blanks. See, God is urging each one of us to live in harmony with each other. Amen? Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. I want to show you a few verses here. Note how many times Paul refers to people being like-minded or of the same mind. Okay? Romans 12, verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Paul closes out this letter to the people of Corinth, uh, the church at Corinth. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be what? Like-minded. Live in peace with the God, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. There's an old saying that's been kicked around Christian circles for years. It's kind of old school now. But I haven't heard it mentioned for quite some time. We do well to practice it. In the essential things, unity. In the non-essential things, liberty. But in all things, charity or love. Charity is the old school word for love. You heard that before? In the essential things, unity. In the non-essential things, liberty. But in all things, love. That's a great principle to incorporate into your life, into the life of the church. However, I read one by an old saint that I believe is even better than that. 
It's simple. It's very concentrated like a laser beam. But it's very weighty and very biblical. And some of you will raise your eyebrows when you hear it. Some of you have heard it before. I've said it many times. But here's the deal. Love God with all your heart and then do as you please. Love God with all of your heart and then do as you please. I believe Psalm 37 verses 4 to 6 expresses that same exact sentiment. Psalm 37 verses 4 to 6, it's on the screen. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Love God with all of your heart, then do as you please. Think about that for a minute. In the first phrase, there is very healthy restraint, right? Love God with all your heart. And in the second part, there is biblical freedom. Do as you please. See, if you love God with all of your heart, you will do only as he wills. You will desire what he desires. What pleases him will also please you. His heart will be your heart. It will break for the same things that break his. It will act in the same way that he acts in sacrificial love. You will then begin to love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the second greatest commandment. If you do what you please and only what God does pleases you, you will never have a problem, right? Galatians, Galatians 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. See, division is a product of our flesh nature, our carnal man, the old man, the one without Christ. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, Factions. Let's just end there. See, we need to realize that our stability in Christ is what moves us toward harmony with each other. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Again, verse 25 of Galatians 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk or walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. In the church, when people work as a team, as one body in Christ, we don't strive to excel each other or challenge one another's place or realm 
of responsibility and authority. Rather, we depend on one another working together for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. See, we need each other. We depend on each other. Therefore, we need to help each other. Amen. Our stability in Christ is not only surrounded by relational and spiritual intimacy and supported by mutual harmony, but finally here, Paul says our stability in Christ is sustained by personal loyalty. Look at verse 3. Philippians 4. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. There are those times when disharmony calls for a mediator. And Paul enlists one right here. The words true comrade here, or as the King James Version renders it, true yoke fellow, may actually be translated as a proper name in this context. Sisygus, all these weird names in this context, right? Euodia, Syntyche, Sisygus. If so, if that's true, and it could be translated as a proper name, then Paul is calling for this person to come alongside these two women as a mediator to help bring them together. You know what Sisygus means? The name properly means one who pulls well in a double harness. That's where they got yoke fellow from. According to Kenneth Wiest, who has written a number of volumes on word studies in the Greek New Testament, there was a practice among the Greeks in the first century church at their Christian baptism to discard their pagan names and be given a new name descriptive of their new character as molded by their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If that was the case here in Philippi, Paul enlists the aid of this man named Sisygus who was loyal to his name. He was a bridge builder. And Paul calls on him to get between these two women who are at odds and help pull them together. Basically to fulfill what Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6 when he said, In verse 1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Oh, my goodness, how we need people in the church today to do this kind of thing. Spiritual people, people who follow Christ hard after Christ, who will step in and help others settle their conflicts and point them to Jesus. Jesus calls these people peacemakers in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that? And he pronounces a profound blessing on them in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, what? Sons of God. Sons of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus himself, the Son of God, was the greatest peacemaker of all time. He took our yoke upon himself and made a way for us to be reconciled to God. These two women were valuable to the church at Philippi, and they had fought hard alongside Paul for the sake of the gospel. They shared in this intense struggle for the gospel with them, and they were loyal to the cause of Christ. They were valued teammates, 
too valuable to be lost to the enemy. And Paul wanted them reconciled and back out in the fray. We ought to look at each other as valuable assets to the community of believers, shouldn't we? If there's a conflict, we all suffer. We need to realize that any struggles that we have in the body of Christ should be against the enemy, not against each other. One of Satan's greatest tools to divide the church is to get us to lose sight of our common objective and to begin to turn in on each other. We don't need to turn against each other with enmity, but we need to turn toward each other in loyalty. That's what Paul's doing here. That's what he's encouraging. Because when we labor together in the same cause, the cause of Christ, there is this attitude of loyalty that is absolutely essential. And these women lost it, and they went down in eternity as being at odds with each other. We have no written record of whether or not they ever got it together. No other history account, historical accounts, no other word in the Scripture. And that is incredibly sad, isn't it? None of us want that, do we? Everything we know about them is right here in this text. If the question ever comes up in Bible trivia... Who were Euodia and Syntyche? What would your answer be? Oh, the only answer that you have, right? They were the two women who lived in Philippi who lived in disharmony. That's their heritage. That's their legacy. That's all we know about them. That's all people remember about them. So if your life were to be summed up in one sentence today, a single sentence, what would it be? Would it be like that? See, our stability is in Christ. We can have relationships surrounded by relational and spiritual intimacy, supported by mutual harmony and sustained with personal loyalty. That's the joyful power of the gospel that enables us to stay together through the worst of storms and the fieriest trials. In the December 31st issue of the 1989 Chicago Tribune, the editors printed a series of the best photographs of the decade. One of them was a dramatic fire rescue photo by Michael Fryer, who captured a grim fireman and a paramedic carrying a fire victim away from the scene. The blaze, which happened in Chicago in December of 1984, at first seemed routine until firefighters discovered the bodies of a mother and five children huddled in the kitchen of an apartment. Fryer said the firefighter surmised this, that she could have escaped with two or three of the children, but probably couldn't decide which ones to pick. And so she chose to wait with all of them for the firefighters to arrive. And unfortunately, all of them died of smoke inhalation. Folks, here's the deal. There are times when you just don't leave the ones you love. And that applies to relationships in the church. 
No matter what kind of storm rages around us, no matter what kind of fire threatens to burn us down, you don't leave the ones you love. Jesus would never do that. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And we should never do that. So before we go to this communion table, I want to take time to be quiet while our worship team comes. And I want you to ask yourself the question, is there someone I need to be reconciled with today? Because the whole communion table is about reconciliation. It's about remembering what Christ did to reconcile us to the Father. And he was the only one that could do it. But Jesus also gave us a responsibility and a mission. Because he loves us, we can love each other. Amen? And he says we need to be reconciled to each other.